Hey everybody, Chris Lindsay here, and you're listening to Pitch List. We want to discover what makes creative people tick. Join us as we explore what it means to be a writer, and more importantly, what it means to be a person. Remember why you love music, and welcome to Pitch List. Hey, Chris Lindsay here, and I want to thank you for listening to another episode of Pitch List. My guest today has made records, starred in movies, lost his way, and returned to Nashville like a prodigal son with a fantastic album called Blue Eyes, The Harlot, The Queer, The Pusher, and Me. He unflinchingly tells his story of addiction and redemption, along with the difficulties of navigating the country music business as an openly gay man. He's a fascinating character, and his Frank Liddell-produced project is absolutely transcending. Here's Waylon Payne. Good morning. Good morning. Pitchlist here. Pandemic version on Zoom. Special edition with Mr. Waylon Payne. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm great. I've been looking uh, forward to talking to you, man. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking an interest, and I'm happy to be here. How are you surviving all this stuff? Pretty good. You know, um, I'll, I'll, I'll go along good for a week or two, and then I'll get kind of down for a couple of days. It's really weird. Yeah. It seems to be the norm for most of my friends that I talk to. You know, you can do okay for a few days, and then you just snap, and you're like, what the heck is going on? Yeah. yeah. A lot yeah. of sensory overload these days. And it's yeah. strange how we're all communicating via the, 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 the computer internet now. It's like some sort of weird sci-fi movie in a way. None of us can be together. We all have to be locked behind our doors. And uh, people are scared to even be around each other. Uh, and we talk through the computer. Crazy times. It is. It is. Uh, and the masks, we went up to Target the other day and I told my kid, I was like, man, it's like a sci-fi movie. It's like <laughs> Stephen King book called The Stand. You know, I'm just, yeah. I, I'm ready for some, you know, it's just like, it's really weird. It wouldn't really surprise weird. me if the zombies don't start coming. In I know. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like if, if it could get any more bizarre than it is right now. I would not be surprised. Yeah. It, you know, uh, it either be the zombies or, you know, um, or uh, heck, maybe even, you know, the rapture or something. I'm not sure what I feel about all that, but it could happen. And I mean, you know, it's crazy. You never know. You never, you never know. know. Well, let's talk about um, when I, my first, I can't believe, what years were you living in L.A.? Well, I lived or what in time period. Were you in there like in the late nineties? Were you still there? Early nineties, very end of the nineties, ninety nine through two thousand six. Okay, so I had already left L.A. because I was Maybe. thinking I would surely have bumped into you. We have, I know we have mutual friends. Um, so, you when did you make your first record? Two thousand and four. Two thousand and four. Um, the the Drifter. Yes, sir. Okay, first thing we just got, I'm going to germ out on you a little bit. That record is so flipping good, man. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm proud of that record. It was uh, uh, Keith Gaddis and I out in Los Angeles back yeah. in the day. And it was, uh, it was real nice. So I'm, I'm, it stands the test of time. 
Kravitz. It does. You know, and also I think maybe it was ahead of its time. Do you ever think that? Could have been. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, I just think we, we, we all knew good music. Yeah. I mean, in a way, in a way we were all, we were all second generationers, you know? I mean, Gaddis had been making music for a long time. We were with the pickers out there that were with our contemporaries, you know, uh, the people that played a part in that record were our contemporaries. We were the people that were coming up and making music. And I, I don't mean that in a conceited way, you know, but mm -hmm. looking back, it's really kind of crazy. We were the ones that were supposed to take the place of all of our forefathers. And, and it was kind of interesting the way that all of us have turned out in the, in the, since 15, 16 years. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's different to look at it from that perspective. We were wild and crazy and we were having a ball because we could do anything because nobody would tell us no. You know, we were pretty and we were young mm -hmm. and we were in Hollywood and uh, people paid attention and we made a great record. But we knew what we knew what good music was because we grew up worshiping it. Gaddis and I loved the same music. We loved the same people. We had the same influences. So the same things that he thought were cool, I thought were doubly cool, you know? Yeah. And it's nice to have that as a root of somebody you can make music with was, was our, just our, just our sheer love and admiration and desire to be country stars. You know, yeah, back, I then, do. It was still, back then I still had that idiot dream enough to think I could be a country star. Does that make sense? We all did. We thought, I mean, we all wanted to be, you know, country stars. That's what we were shooting for back then. But, uh, I'm so glad we, we turned into songwriters and singers, you know? You know, another thing about it that struck me listening to it in the last couple of days, it sounds fresh, that record. It's from, like you said, 2006, but it could have been recorded last month. And, you know, the reason I think it is is because you use traditional elements. You know, you got drums, guitar, electric guitar, B3. You have those basic classic elements that really don't go out of style. It's a right. great lesson, I think, for making records that well, have shelf life, you know? I'll tell Gaddis you said that, and he'll, he'll probably say he appreciated it. Well, I just think it's great. But let's talk about this. Tell me the story. So I, I want to know. So you, and I mean, you're pretty well documented as, as having a pretty crazy life out in L.A. And, and hitting rock bottom, as I've read in your stuff. And I don't know how much that, I mean, clearly you're okay with talking about it, I guess. But. How did you sort of crawl out of that and end up back in Nashville? Uh, well, I had taken some time to uh, go to Texas. Uh, a friend of mine down there named Corey Morrow uh, took my telephone call, and I was in a bad way. I needed to. I had drug dealers living in my house. My mom had died, and I was, I was just. Uh, on a, on a bender that had been going on for you know, five or six years, you know, and, uh, and I just kept going deeper and deeper in. And I ended up in Texas. Uh, Corey put together a series of, of dates for me to do. And when I got there, uh, I met my best friend, Edward Johnson. And uh, Edward was just a, he was, an, he was a, a, a gift from somewhere in the cosmos. He was, uh, 
like a father, like a big brother, like a like a hero. It was just a, he was just a good guy, and he reminded me of some things that I had let go astray because I had been plying myself with drugs for so long, you know. And uh, I'd just been running from some stuff that I hadn't dealt with as a, as a as a young man, and didn't really grasp what was going on until I lost my my. I lost my North Star, which was my mom, and, and then I had to, you know. So I went to Texas and met my buddy Edward, and, and with the help of him and the Nelson family, uh, Willie, Amy, Connie, Paula, uh, Annie, uh, all of them, my friend Sue Ann Zary, they just kind of put their arms around me and uh, started to help me get better. And then Edward had a baby, and... Uh, that baby saved my life, dude. Once, once I met Lake and knew that he was a person that knew me, mm -hmm. can't have a baby lay his head on your, on your neck so that he can feel your heartbeat and go to sleep without that being something special. And I knew that if I kept going the way I was going, I would, I would fade away. And I really wanted to watch that boy grow up. I liked the man I became because uh, I took some time to know his dad and his dad just kind of reminded me of what it was like to, you know, for Amanda. Yeah. It was just, it was just a general reminder. Once I got sober, it was great. It, yeah. just helped me. it was a stand up situation. I didn't have too many positive Melrose models that were in my life at the time. I was, I had a lot of bad folks and the ones that were good role models I couldn't get to, you know, but he just came like a, like a champion and helped me see some things and then a bunch of other people helped me see some things and they all stood behind me and they just wouldn't let me fall. And 10 years later, here we are. It's amazing. Man. About it. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's so easy in, in music business, um, to get started drinking, partying, drugs. And this is just from my own personal experience, which I, I don't really talk about. I've never really talked about on the podcast, but, you know, it's very easy when you're young and you start out, you're just having fun. You know, nobody's getting hurt. Doing what you supposed to do. Yeah, it's rock and roll. It's all good. You know, you know, you maybe got a bad hangover, but you know, it's very insidious. You fix it, you fix it with another drink and then you right. eventually, I mean, you're doing what you watched your heroes do. Unfortunately, yeah, that's the other part of it too. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, you know, and then for me, I got into a thing where it was just, the, I didn't have the energy, you know what I mean? And then I got, you know, I had, a, I got into a pretty bad problem myself. Well, here, try some uppers, right? You know, yeah. I mean, you know, when I first started doing amphetamines, oh my God, I did. I would write a symphony in 12 hours overnight, right. you know, and it was great. It was like the best shit in the world, but it wasn't. No. Slowly losing your mind. And, thank and, God the music, and the music's not good. You just think it is. Right. Well, okay, you, all you right. Get, you may get lucky once. Or twice. Okay, feel all like, right. Feel like I did on this album that I've currently got because Shiver came from the darkest point of my life. Well, okay. In 2004, and I think that's a brilliant song. I'm not gonna. Yeah. It fit with the chaos of the of the of the moment of that necessity of the storytelling. Mm -hmm. I feel like this story, in a weird way, weaves itself. You know. Yeah. It tells a story that started with my father uh and 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 my ancestors you know and the things that went wrong it just takes a different look at it you know and i and this is is this shiver you're talking about no just the whole album in general. The whole album 
but uh, yeah. shiver was the low point of of uh, of the of the drugs. You know that was, and it was the cause of the drugs mostly. You know, so it was it was a big part of it. It was the only song that I included that was old. I'll tell you that. Right. Well, I think it's nice for you to have a a part of that. You know what I mean? Like you just felt right. You know, yeah. Because a little it, placekeeper from where you are, from where you came. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy that you. Uh, you found your way out of that. It sounds like you really had great people around you. I think that's so key. It's really the important thing, you know. Yeah. You have to find something. You have to find something that makes you want to live. Yeah. I think, you know. Yeah. You have to find value. You have to. I mean. I mean. I just had some people pick me up and dust me off. Mm-hmm. And if they were any count, they started expecting things out of me which is what we should do of our friends. We should expect things out of each other. We should expect better out of each other. And we should hold each other accountable. Unfortunately, I had no one in my life that was doing that. Right, because and you... Hadn't, hadn't for a long time. You're, you know? and I, not to interrupt you, but I think it's a great part of your story. Your parents were both on the road when you were young, right? And you yeah. were living with your grandparents or maybe... You, you didn't really have your parents at home much, right? Yeah, you're right. Mom was on the road a lot. My dad, you know, he wasn't around. I didn't meet him till I was about 16 years old. You didn't, whoa, you didn't meet him until you, you'd never even been around him? Nope. Holy shit. You no, know, he was a little rough and my mother didn't want me to be around him. And uh, she tried to provide a stable, uh, you know, a stable upbringing for me. She put me with her brother and his wife because she was on the road too. I mean, you right. know, when I was born, she was at the at the height of her career, so she couldn't stop. And um, so uh, that's what happened. I I went to live with my aunt and uncle, and I didn't meet my dad till I was about sixteen. And then around eighteen years old, he became a prominent part of my life because the rest, the other side of the family, decided that uh, they had to set me on my way. We had some drama in the family, some personal stuff, and uh, which all led to them finding out I was gay or, or, or me letting everybody know I was gay. And uh, they were a really religious family, and they didn't feel the need to have me around anymore and thus so expelled me from the family. So I started hanging out with my dad around, around that time and Willie and, and, the, and those guys, you know. And, uh, and that's where I started learning how to make music. Well, now, wait a minute. So the guy that your mother thought was too rough for you to be around is the one who then was accepting of you coming out? Well, yeah. I mean, Willie, Willie, yeah, they, I mean, yeah. I mean, dad, dad, they, they were, you know, daddy wasn't interested in, he didn't care. He was interested in, right. in rock and roll. It seems like your dad wasn't judgmental of you coming out as much. Well, we just met each other. How could he be judgmental? <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay. I mean, nobody really cared except for the family that threw me out. That's so, that's so crazy, man. It wasn't that long ago. People are sad sometimes. People just don't know how to deal with shit, you know? Yeah. A lot of people go through it. It's nothing, uh, I've gone through nothing that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other kids have gone through. Yeah. At some point in their life. And it's sad. It's sad because, uh, that will break a child. That will sure. break a child. Sure. 
Sure. And do you think it's better now? Do you think it's getting better? What's that? Well, uh, the ability for kids to come out, not be judged, uh, having their. I mean, these days, kids are so um, able to be. You know, there are so many things they can be. When I was, I mean, I've been gay a long time. I've been gay like thirty years. (laughs) Right. I'm forty-eight. You know, when I was growing up and in high school, being gay was the fucking absolute worst thing in the fucking world you could be. You know. I I remember. Yes. And like. we were, I was called queer, a fag, a fucking homo, you know, every fucking word in the book. It is kind of strange and maybe I'm just old school setting my ways, but it's very strange to me to hear kids call themselves queer and think that that's something I was beat up for that shit. I got disowned because of that word, you know, you know, it's weird how time has evolved and stuff, you know what I mean? Because like, uh, and they have no clue, you know, that what's crazy about that too, is these young ones that are, the, we're the queer allies and we're the, the young queer guys. They have no clue what we went through just in the, in the, in the late eighties and nineties, you know? Right. And it's just weird how history has evolved and made these words, which were words of such hatred back then but now they're accepted as commonality. You know what I mean? It yeah. kind of boggles my mind as a, yeah, it just, but ultimately, my mind. but ultimately, I mean, don't you think it's good? I think it's good. It's I, good. I think it's good. It's that they're owning it. And that's great. I mean, it's great. Hey, look at, you know what? Here's another thing. I mean, I grew up being gay and that was hard enough. I do not even know what I would do if I woke up in the morning and thought I was a woman inside this body you know what i mean yeah i do I, I mean and these babies today have gone i mean it's like they are going through such it's crazy hard for them it's crazy hard for them i don't i would yeah. i um i pray over lake in my mind and and his friends because i i just know it's a crazy world thankfully that he's got a good dad and they've got good families around them you know Mm -hmm. they're all very well adjusted so uh but i sure would not want to go back and be a kid today (laughs) yeah well i guess it's always hard being a kid well i think we forget i i've got teenage kids and um just watching them go through it's it's just tough it's tough being a kid man oh yeah it's if you, I was thinking back about things, watching my daughter who's 13 go through something. And I was, I was like, Oh yeah, I remember that. It's dramatic, man. It's dramatic. Being a teenager is tough. Yeah. Cause their minds, you know? Yeah. You know, and then you realize, well, wait a minute. My mind used to think that way. And wow, they haven't figured out this whole level of stuff yet. And this is still the only thing on their mind, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's crazy. Thanks for listening, everybody. Pitch list. will be right back. Well, let's talk a little bit. Now, you made the new record, right, with Frank. Is that right, with Frank Liddell? Frank Liddell and Eric Massey. Yeah, I've known Frank forever. What a great guy he is. What a crazy We've known each other for about 25 years. He was one of the first people I ever met in Nashville when I came in 94, 5. Yeah, and then one of the first records I heard that he produced was uh, Chris uh, Chris Chris Knight. Yeah great records it was the first record he handed me he had just done it and he was really proud of it so that's how i got to know frank was in the 
I'd finally talk my way into MCA records one day and the Miss Miss Billy, Willie, the lady behind the desk, finally I guess got tired of seeing my face after two years. <laughs> said okay if you think you can handle yourself and get yourself a record deal go on and try and so i i did i got past the door here we are 25 years later wait a minute let's talk about that because i love these stories i think a lot of people that listen to our podcast are starting out and and trying to find their way so when you're going down don't don't tell them to do this because they get arrested these days i want to tell no but you Maybe not this, but you have to be creative. Talk talk about yeah. that. So did you go to the record company all the time? How did you do oh, it? Yeah. I mean, like, um, you know, the record companies were all on 16th and 17th Avenue, like all of them, within a, within a six-block period from, you know, DeMombrian to, to, what is it up there, 8th uh, uh, or, oh, or Woodmore, Wedgwood. Wedgwood, yeah, you yeah. know you you had a lot of territory to cover and it wasn't just one or two it was all the majors it was all the subsidies of the majors yeah all the publishing companies managers everything well back then you know it was like the thing to you know networking was it nobody had fried their brain out on meth yet cocaine hadn't really gotten that big yet everybody was just kind of drinking and having fun maybe they took some pills you know um but it was a good it was a good time I came to town uh, and cut my teeth on Broadway, you know, uh, Mama Joe's, The mm-hmm. Turf, uh, Printer's Alley at Barbara's. Were you playing? Were you gigging down there? I, back then, man, we sang. Well, there was live music everywhere, and it was every band member that had been anybody anywhere could get a gig somewhere. So every band was fucking great, dude. Like, not kidding. Mm-hmm. Like, and they were all dressed to the nines, and it was every every club you walked into. It was just like you had walked to it walked into the Opry because it was great music. Everybody knew it. It was standards, a lot of shit, and everybody was hot because you had to be, you know. It was just the way it was, and we were young kids. You know, we'd start at uh, start at the turf where Rippy's is at right now, and we'd work our way down all the way through Mama Joe's and, and uh, you know, and then cross the street, come back over, Roberts, Tootsie's, you know, all of those mm-hmm. clubs were there. Then we'd make our way over to Printer's Alley. You could do it all night long. Yep. You it all night long. You'd start at 5 o'clock, and by the time it was 3 o'clock, you'd maybe done it twice, all of them. And then you'd go home, and then you'd go back and do it again. And uh, I knew I was good. Um, it was also a little wild. And uh, I, you know, I'd lost my family because I was gay mm-hmm. and I'd made a decision to myself that nobody was ever going to fucking tell me what I could be or not be. And if you didn't like what I was, then you didn't have to hang out with me. But I certainly didn't shove being gay down your throat, but like, I, I didn't lie about it, you know? Right. And um, I just didn't care. I wanted to sing country music and that's what I did. I partied and sang country music. And that involved, you know, doing like my heroes did, which I read about all my heroes, Christopherson and, and Willie and Hank Cochran and Mickey Newberry and Bobby Gentry. At some point, every, every one of them had to take a risk. You know, for Chris, it was flying his helicopter into Johnny Cash's backyard and giving him a copy of Sunday Morning Coming Down, which inevitably changed his future. Right. You know? 
everybody has one of those things that they have to do and take risks. And so I believed all that shit. I believed all those legends. And so it was not above me at all to get a little hammered or a little hungover and feeling like I was hopeless the next day and cleaning myself up and taking a walk and trying to get into MCA records or trying to get into RCA records. I don't know what I was going to do once I got in there, but my, my speech was pretty much, Hey, I'm Sammy Smith's uh, son and I'm here. I need a record deal. I'm a good singer. Who do I talk to? Of course they just would think you were an idiot. Every single one of them would just show you the door kind of thing. And it Mm -hmm. went on for, years and, uh, MCA uh, this lady had worked the desk right there in the office Willie May you remember Miss Willie May I do I yeah. do yes Miss Willie May was back there behind that counter and one day I'd had enough and I came in there and it was my last ditch effort I thought or at least it was another last ditch effort and I must have looked all sorts of haggard or whatever I don't know why she took compassion on me that day mm-hmm but I was like, I'm more than pain. I really need to talk to somebody about a record deal, please. And she said, all right, take a seat. <laughs> and the next thing I knew I was in Mark Wright's office. Really? Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is how this goes. And, uh, I think he, I didn't, I couldn't, I, I didn't have anything shape. I think I gave him a spiel like, you know, Hey, I'm really great. But if you just give me a chance, I, I mean, I need to, you know, I don't know who, who could take what I said. I don't remember. Were you, were you carrying a tape? Did you have a demo tape yeah, with you? The tape didn't have nothing. I okay. just got in the door and I was in his office strictly on my mother's name. Boy, God, how did that piss drop? That got back to her pretty quick too. Uh. In the nineties, but whatever. <laughs> uh, but, uh, he goes, I don't, I think I could, I think there's somebody next door that can help you better than I can. And he sent me next door to Frank Liddell's office. Mm -hmm. And Frank tells this story and I'll tell this story. The only reason I can tell this story is because I love hearing Frank tell it. And he tells it according to Frank, I walked in and said, I wanted to be a country singer. And then uh, he said, well, Tell me about yourself. And he says, I doubled down and said, I want to be the first openly gay country singer. Now, I don't remember saying that, but if it's true, I had balls of steel even back then, which is kind of cool. Yeah. But I don't remember that part of it. But it's not, like I said, it's not above me. I might have been drunk going in there. I might have been hungover. Who could say the exact state of my mind? And I'm, anyway, so he says, do you play guitar? Can you play me something? I said, no, I don't play guitar. And he's like, well, you write songs. Can you sing me something you wrote? I'm like, I don't write in he says, well, I guess you got your work cut out for you. And he said, <laughs> but we started hanging out and that led to us being at Joe's pub later that week. And then it just started a friendship, uh, which has gone for many, many years. And after I did my album in Los Angeles, I came to Nashville and he gave me my first publishing deal. And, uh, he's just been a beacon ever since you know even when i strayed away under the under the throes of drugs and could not compose myself he took me back when i got sober and let me make it up and did a record on me he has been such a champion of talent everything he does has been impeccable and sometimes i don't know if he knows 
exactly how cool he is. Because sometimes, you know, he, he'll, you'll, you'll hear him say, well, I don't know if I could do such and such because of such and such. And you're like, well, wait a minute, you're, you're Frank Liddell, dude. Don't yeah. you realize that? If I was him, my nuts would be like that big. <laughs> yeah. You know? One thing, and I don't know him well, but from what I've noticed, he, he, he loves music, man. He does. He loves He loves, He fucking loves music. Oh, here's something else that's crazy. I've known Frank for 25 freaking years, right? And it was only four or five years ago that I found out he's a, 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 an amazing guitar player. I didn't know that. Yeah, that'll blow your mind. Let that sink in. The minute that Frank Liddell walks and picks up a guitar and starts spitting off some freaking Django shit or some shit, and you're like, what the fuck is Yeah, that? I didn't know that. Where did that come from? <laughs> it's pretty crazy. And uh, I should thank Willie Mae because that was, a, that was a pretty damn good thing she did that day. What a great story. So you just persisted and didn't even have a demo tape. You're just like, I wanna, I'm a singer. Well, keep in mind, I finally got into his office. Nothing still ended up happening for many, many years, you know. Uh, right, but you started a relationship. Yeah, we just started our relationship, and he was always somebody that I would stop in on, and he always let the door be open. You know, he'd always hear what was going on. He was yeah. just a great guy. Well, see, uh, I think that's a great lesson for people starting out. I've had seen it in my life and many people's lives. Maybe you don't have that moment where you get discovered and they write you a big check, but you meet people, you develop relationships like this, and over time, that's how it really works. I think it's great you know yeah. it's a great story yeah it's true yeah you're taking me back now to the 90s music row in the 90s boy it's, it's really changed hasn't it boy you ain't kidding some great some great things and some not I, I miss certain things about the i came in late 90s and it was it's quite a different town now isn't it i miss fanfare me too at the I racetrack miss, i miss opryland yep the theme park the theme park. Yeah. Yes. I know. People don't even know. We used to have a roller coaster. It was yeah. a good one. Which people don't even realize, too. They had one, maybe two bad years at the theme park and decided to close it down. What I know. I For mean, that mall. Don't make me talk about sad Opryland. Yeah, because there was a great theme park out there. And then uh, Fanfare was out at the racetrack here. Flea market. It, yep. Awesome. Everybody in town was packed under, like, one big tent. Yep. And it was, it was so fun. Those I mean, were days. Good stuff. It was good stuff. So the, your, your whole new record just came out, right? Right. The new one you've done with Frank. Yes, sir. Which is amazing. Blue Eyes, The Harlot, The Queer, The Pusher, and Me. Yes, sir. That's a hell of a title. Thank you. Last that line, all come, uh, tell me about uh, the title. Uh, it's the last line of a song. It's the last, long, last line of the last song of the album. Uh, it's a chronicle uh, about my friend Tyler. Tyler's old blue eyes, and I guess you could call him the pusher too. He was my drug dealer in 2007 and eight. And uh, it was just about our summers there. And he died in 2008, and I wrote that song the night he died. We used to hang out and he would sing Christopherson songs to me. and. Uh, Silver Tongue Devil and I was one of his favorites, and uh, he had asked me or challenged me to come up with a title that was as cool as that, or write a song that sounded as cool as that off your tongue, and I just spit out Old Blue Eyes, The Harlot, The Queer, and The Pusher, and Me, and he said, write it down, and 
promise you'll name an album that one day. So I, uh, I, I did not intend to do it, but was encouraged by Frank and Massey in the end to go ahead and stick with it. So I'm glad I kept the promise. Fantastic, man. And I'm sorry that you lost your friend. That's too. Hey, it's okay. He had, he had some, he, he lived a life. He needed to go. He needed to, he needed to rest for a while. He was tired. Yeah. Now I did read in one of your bios that you, you are buds with Christofferson. Is that right? Yes, sir. That's, that's amazing. He's one of my heroes. How's that? How's it to be friends with Chris Christofferson? Well, he's, um, I mean, he's, he is responsible if you want to boil it down to brass tacks for me even being here. Uh, if it weren't for him, uh, writing, help me make it through the night. My mother would probably not have had her first number one hit or got him his first Grammy or her first Grammy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, it's because of her, uh, and it's because of him that I'm, I'm around doing music, you know, and he's just the epitome of everything. I think that, country music is he's a beautiful poet a beautiful soul uh many times has been just like a dad to me as is willie you know they the i've been really fortunate to have some really exemplary mm-hmm. exemplary heroes in my life now if i could just get bobby gentry to have dinner with me <laughs> love, I love, her songs. love them love them, me too i uh i scream her name from the mountaintops along with chris's and mama's and willie's uh, my heroes are, are 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 just that. My heroes. I think all of us could take a lesson in some of the poetry of them. We should get more acquainted with with their works, and maybe it'll make ours richer. I agree, man. And I love that you carry on the tradition. You, try, you really do. I try really hard. I think it's. You, I know. You know. I I uh, I come from I come from country music, and I'm very proud yeah. of that. Uh, you know, my daddy said to me once when we first started running the roads, he was like, son, I'm really, I'm really proud that you decided to join the family business. And it's always stuck with me that phrase because it is a family, you know, Mm -hmm. I have lots of, lots of good family members. I'm a fortunate son. (laughs) Yes. Well, and I, and I think you've had your, your share of struggles and I've had mine and I know, I know, I know what it takes to, uh, to, to, to claw your way back from some of that stuff. And man, God bless you. God bless you. Anybody you know, gets, anything gets a, gets a, gets a high five on my book. Well, awesome, man. Thank well, you awesome. so much Thanks for talking much for to us. Um, I appreciate it. Hey, it was such a great talk. And I can't, I got to tell you again, I know we kind of wandered off into music row talk, but if I didn't communicate it to you, I absolutely love the early record you did and this new stuff too. I just, I think it's fantastic, man. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And we'll see you soon. And thanks for promoting us. Yes. And I love your story and just, I hope you just knock it out of the top of the roof with this thing, man. Hey buddy. See See you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of pitch list to hear songs written and or recorded by today's guest. Check out this week's playlist by finding us on Spotify at Pitch List Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred listening platform. And if you want, feel free to leave us a five-star rating and review. For more exclusive content from this week's guest and more, 
you can visit our website at pitchlistpodcast.com or follow our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.